Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Today is a special day for us here in the United States, and we will be remiss if we did not just take a moment to acknowledge that it is the 17th anniversary of the September 11th bombings. And uh, obviously not directly related to this show in a lot of ways, um, but, you know, our entire production team, as we were kind of going through and getting ready to go on the show and uh, we we're talking about different things to talk about. And, and one of them said, you know, I just think it would be appropriate for you to to address this and just kind of to talk about it. And so we started just kind of having an informal conversation um, about the technology and, and impacts of those events 17 years ago. And one of the things that we quickly realized very early on was that open source, Linux, privacy, the importance of owning your technology, all of those things were impacted by the events that took place on September 11th. And as I was walking around today and looking at the flags that were at half-mast, it dawned on me that it extends beyond just the privacy implications. Because on September 11th, cell phone talkers were knocked out of service. Emergency service personnel were unable to communicate in a lot of situations in a lot of ways. But you know what was working? Ham radio. Amateur radio. The people that own their technology, that own their infrastructure, the people that didn't rely on the cloud services, those were the people that were able to continue to communicate. And in the years, and the 17 years, in the aftermath of 9-11, as TSA has gotten out of control, as border security has gotten out of control, and the invasions into our privacy and monitoring of our communications have gotten out of control, as those things have continued to happen, open source, Linux, encryption, all of those things have been there to protect your data, your privacy, and empower you. And so that's the best I can do to, 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 to I guess, address this or, or talk about this. And obviously, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just feel like it's an, it's an important way to open the, the show. Again, open phones, one 855 450 no 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Um, Neil writes into the program. We got an email, so we'll take that here. He says, hi, Noah. I'm a new listener of your show. One of the main reasons I found you is because I was searching for YouTube. I am tired of Windows and wanted to switch to Linux and open source due to the privacy and security. I'm currently working for an IT industry, but I'm thinking of learning perhaps C Sharp, especially visual coding. 
I have some Java experience, but C-sharp seems to be interesting in terms of finding a job in the area I live. I know that MonoDevelop is available for C-sharp, but that is only good for core development. I want to completely remove Windows from my personal life. The irony here is that in order to learn Visual C-sharp, uh, I had to reinstall Windows and Visual Studio on my laptop. So it's with a heavy heart that I write into you to ask for an alternative on Linux that I can use Linux to practice my C-sharp skills. I'm loving the Ubuntu and Ubuntu-based Ubuntu Linux. Thanks for the content, Neil. Um, so let's dig into this a little bit. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your support. It is always appreciated. I'm glad that we're able to help new users get started and work their way through Linux. My suggestion to you is to not dive in real heavy on C sharp. It's not a typical Linux language from what I'm told. Now I'm not a developer. I don't play one on TV, but I have a lot of friends that are developers and, um, I am told that C sharp is not a, a language that is heavily used in Linux. So unless you want to stay in windows, I wouldn't even bother with it. Now there isn't anything better than mono develop as far as, as, as I'm aware of. Um, but here is, here is an option for you. Microsoft in their ever never ending quest to become as good as Linux has actually released Microsoft visual studio as open source. And that is available on Linux. So if all you need to do your job is Microsoft visual studio, you could certainly do that on Linux. But what we would suggest you do is, um, you know, if you, if you're, if you're just starting from the beginning, uh, we always tell developers to start uh, with Python. It's a really great language to get involved in, to get started with, but it's scale. So you can go, you can do the bigger projects. Um, so that, that's, that would be one option for you. The other option would be if you want to stick with actual mach machine language, um, then, then learn something like, uh, like actual C. Uh, there are plenty of programs that are written in C and, uh, as best of my knowledge that the majority of the kernel and, 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 and lower level type things are all written in C. One great resource for you, because again, I'm not a developer is to join the ask Noah show telegram group. That's at telegram.asknoahshow.com. And there, there are plenty of developers, all of which would be more than happy to help you learn whatever it is you're wanting to learn or accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish. And uh, these are some really fantastic folks that have a lot more knowledge than me in a wide breadth of things. So I can help you with business stuff, the IT side, the IT admin side, can't really help you with developer stuff, but there are people in the community that can. Now, if you're not in the Ask Noah Telegram group, this week is the week to join. We're going to have more information for you as the show goes on, but this is the week to join the Ask Noah Telegram group because you might have a chance to win some cash. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Jim joins us from Virginia. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Good evening, Noah. I have two questions regarding a problem I'm having with backing up my Linux boxes to a FreeNAS server. Um, connected okay. by NFS, and I can easily, from the command line, mount the, uh, the necessary things and direct it to a specific uh, symlink on each computer that puts it out to the proper directory on the FreeNAS. Um, when I go to set that up in uh, FS tab, Etsy FS tab, right. at least on the first machine that I'm working on, uh, it doesn't mount. And I'm thinking, well, all right, I've got I've got the FS tab entry wrong. But then 
I, I do a, a sudo mount dash A, and it says, oh, yeah, I see where that is, and it, and it mounts the drive. So it's not mounting during boot up, but say a minute or two afterwards, I can do it manually. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's a, this particular machine is connected by Wi-Fi, so maybe it's a problem with the Wi-Fi loading later than it should uh, or in the sequence or uh, NFS, or I, I'm not certain where to look for that problem. And then once we've talked about that, there's one other thing regarding that. Okay. Uh, well, let's start there. I, I, I agree with your diagnosis that it is probably the network stack is following later than when, F, when FSTAB is loading. A hack-around solution, not, again, I'm not necessarily suggesting that you do this, but one hack-around solution that you could do is you could, uh, you could create a... Um, you could create a script that runs at login um, and, and basically in that script run your mount command in there. I had to, I had to do something similar when we were, we were building a remote broadcast unit um, for the radio station that I work for, and we built a custom unit that was sending this, um, this uh, uncompressed wave RTP stream. The, the issue was I wasn't able to actually start um, the software streaming until after the uh, the network stack came up. And so I was running into a very similar issue that you were running into. And so the, what, what we ended up doing was we just, the computer was set to automatically log in, but we just set a, a, a script to run at login that, um, that in our case started the streaming. But I would assume you could do the same thing with mounting that NFS share. All right, with the mount command, though, doesn't it need to be sudo? And if so, is that going to work in a, in a script? Yes, because... Uh, scripts is if they're run by cron or executed as root, so you won't need the sudo. Uh. Uh, you won't you won't need the sudo, so you'll you'll be able to. And I, I forget the exact uh, exact places where I'm going to show my ignorance, but hey, this is what you get when you do a live show, right? Um, there is there there is a series of init scripts, and one of them. There is there is one specific file that you can that you can put uh, at and where it it runs at login. There's one that you can put in that runs at at reboot. There's one that you can put in that that runs um, when the computer comes out of uh, suspend or when it goes into suspend. All of that you can trigger them at, at various points. And uh, I I can look up exactly where to put that script. I just don't remember right off the top of my head. Okay, so it might be in the show notes later. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, it will. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. But you said you had an additional follow up question. Yes, it's uh, with uh, two or more of these units running an initial backup against the server. Uh, within the last 24 hours, the server's been basically going offline and throwing an RE0 colon watchdog timeout error. And seems about the only way to get out of that is to just uh, do an alternate control delete, let the thing reboot, and then it comes back. I've done some research on it. It seems to be... Uh, some issue with certain Realtek chips. This would be an on uh, on motherboard um, NIC, and I'm wondering if getting another NIC, like an Intel NIC or something, would fix that problem. I don't know if you've run into that error. I have. I've never run into it with a file server, but I've run into it with a, a PFSense box, actually, of all things. Um, and I always assumed that the real tech card that we had just wasn't capable of handling the amount of traffic that we were funneling through it because it was the, the WAN card. And so we ended up swapping it for an Intel card, and the problem went away. Um, but, yeah, I agree with your assessment, swapping that card, or your troubleshooting, rather. Swapping that card is probably the, 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 the quick fix. I don't know if there's a way to turn it off, the, the internal one on the motherboard, but perhaps there is in Freenas. I can poke around and find out and say, I want to use this interface, not that one. Of course, if there's only 
if there's only one cable plugged into one of them, then uh, there's only one that the machine can use. True. All right, well, yep. I think that uh, put, points me the right direction on both of these problems, so thank you. I appreciate your help and really enjoy the show. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the call. Uh, you know, the thing is, the... Um, as far as the which card can you use, yes, you absolutely can uh, disable the card in FreeNAS. There's a way to do that. When you, um, when you plug in your uh, keyboard, mouse, and monitor, go into the, the actual console side of it, uh, and you'll get a, a list of options. And one of the options is configure network interfaces. And if you, it's like number four or whatever, you click it, you tap number four, go into that. And one of the options is you'll be able to choose which network you, card you want to use and you'll be able to assign the IP addresses. And so you absolutely could just totally ignore one of them or, or take it out of the loop as it were. And that would work for you. Again, one 855 450 Noah, 855-450-6624. The email live at Ask Dot com. Make your voice heard. Become part of the program. One other way that you can interact with us, uh, we don't talk about it a whole lot, but um, you can join us in our interactive chat room. Our chat room is irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting. And the nice thing about our live chat room is that... Uh, is that uh, you, is it, the, the nice thing about our chat room is that you can provide feedback while we're doing the show. So I typically don't try to take many questions directly out of the chat room simply because it's a um, it's a production thing. It just doesn't sound as good if, if I'm reading the question. It sounds like I'm talking to myself. I read the question, I answer the question, I read the question, I answer the question. So we prefer that you give us a call at our toll-free number, one 855 noah But you can add your voice to the conversation. You can provide feedback. I take information from the chat room all the time. If I've got a question wrong uh, or maybe I need some more information, a lot of times, and I've, I've gotten people lovingly poke fun at me, but I will be doing a show and some, somebody will see the answer come across the chat room and then I will read it as if I knew that answer. And, uh, and of course, you watch the video version that uh, is published on YouTube, then you see me do this and, uh, and it kind of takes some of the magic out of it. But it's a really fun community, somewhat, I, I think, undervalued. I don't think we value the chat room the way that we probably should. And so I just want to make a plug to join us, irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting, or in our interactive telegram group. That discussion goes on all week. Uh, we have discussions about all sorts of things, one of which we're going to get to later on in the hour today. We're talking about IP cameras a couple of weeks ago and um, did some investigating and had some challenges that I wanted to overcome with the Unify system because as some of you may have known or as you've played with the Unify system, it previously was not possible to simply have a live camera feed. You had to go in individual uh, individual cameras and choose that which camera you wanted to see or you had to uh, just momentarily view an entire split screen view and, uh, and refresh that every time. If you tried to just leave it up, the feed would get stale and it would eventually lag behind hours and hours and hours and eventually days. It wasn't a, wasn't a great system, but we have that fixed, that answer coming up later in the hour. Again, one 855 Your calls go to the front of the line. Steve joins us from Canada. Hey, Steve, welcome to the Ask Noah. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah, how are you? Excellent, sir. How can we help? Um, well, I had a couple of things. I was listening to your last caller. I dropped you a, a link to the ArchWiki in in Telegram. Um, he was talking about NFS. The way to get around his problem is to use the SystemDM NFS mount inside of the FS tab, which will do text like, is my network up and can I ping the end thing? And if it can't, as soon as he accesses it and the network comes online, so if he's mounting slash MMT, for example, and he does like an LS into that directory with the system demount, it will then try and mount it on demand, kind of similar to AutoFS. So it gives you kind of the best of both worlds. 
Okay, awesome. And you think that might be the answer? Um, well, cause, because he was saying, like, it sounded like what you both thought, that there was some sort of network lag with the Wi-Fi coming up and not being able to mount the NFS mount properly in the FS tab, but when he does it on the command line, it would work. So it sounds to me like um, it's trying to do the mount before the network is finally ready. Oh, awesome. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I kind of assumed it was something like that. It's just, you know, not having not having seen it, not having hands-on. Guess that's the advantage. So I think I have an idea of who you are, Steve, and that's kind of the advantage in what you do uh, in your job, right? You have the ability to go in, and that's what Red Hat pays you to do, is you go in and, and on the fly figure out these systems and then figure out these things and provide solutions for Red Hat customers. Yeah, yep, that's exactly it. Um, I had a comment about his um, his network. Thing, and I also had a question for you. So um, I also have experienced exactly what he was talking about, the watchdog timeout, where it basically brings the entire box down. Uh, it seems to be an issue with, with um, FreeBSD, which is both what um, PFSense and what uh, FreeNAS are both based on. I've experienced that both myself, and there, there's only a couple of ways to kind of fiddle around with that. You can make it better um, by fooling around with some of the... Um, FreeBSD internals, or you swap out the network card and turn the other one off. Yeah, perfect. Hey, Steve, I really appreciate the call. Thanks for uh, thanks for chiming in. I really appreciate it, and I believe that uh, yeah, actually, let's do this I, because 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 the technology has the capability of doing this. Let's just go back. Jim, are you still on the phone with me? I see that you're still in our call queue. Yes, I was listening to what he said. Does that uh, does that give you some uh, some additional insight? Well, it does give me insight on the network card, and I'll have to look at whatever link he sent you to uh, to understand the other. But it sounds like everything else in Linux, you just change something in a text file, and uh, we should be good to go. Perfect, outstanding. Yes, I thank you both. I, th- I thank you both for the call again. One eight fifty five four fifty no eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. This people, this is a perfect example of why the Ask Noah Show community is powerful because. One person here and one person there, we can connect them. And Steve has the answer to, to you know, to Jim, and, and so we're happy to facilitate that. And so I, I thank you both for calling in and and for listening live because you guys wouldn't be able to, uh, we wouldn't be able to do this if this wasn't live. And uh, I know the vast majority of you listen to the show offline, but we definitely appreciate those of you who take the time, take the questions. Uh, online again one eight fifty five four fifty no eight five five four five zero six six two four the email live at asknoahshow dot com make your voice heard become part of the program so uh, I want to uh, dive into this article that comes to us from TechCrunch and uh, the article is common clause stops open source abuse and it's this idea that the way that you license code that we can come up with a way to license code anyway that would stop people from abusing open source. The article says, the common clause was announced recently along with several projects moving portions of their code base under it. It's an additional restriction intended to be applied to existing open source license and affecting or preventing the work from being used or sold, where the definition of sold includes being used as a component for an online pay for service. As described in the FAQ, this change affects the license of the work from an open source license to an open source ava- to a source available license rather however the site does not go into a great into a great amount of details to why you'd want to do that fortunately one of the vcs behind the move wrote an 
opinion article that goes into more detail. The central argument is that Amazon makes use of great, a great deal of open source software and integrates it into their commercial products. And these products are incredibly lucrative. But they give little back to the community. By adopting this common clause, Amazon will be forced to negotiate with the projects under being able to use the covered versions of the software. This will apparently prevent behavior that is not conducive to sustaining open source communities. But this is where things get somewhat confusing, the author continues. Our view is that open source was never intended to be for cloud infrastructures, and they wasn't designed for companies to take and sell. This is not the original ethos of open source, which is a pretty astonishing astonishingly unsupported argument. Open source code has never has has been incorporated into proprietary applications without giving back to the originating community since before the term open source even existed. MIT licensed X11 became part of not only multiple Unixes but a variety of proprietary commercial products for non-Unix platforms. Large portion of BSD ended up in a range of proprietary operating system including older versions of Windows. The only argument in favor of this assertion is that cloud infrastructure companies didn't exist at all at that point in time and so they weren't taken into consideration. But no argument is made as to why cloud infrastructure companies are fundamentally different to proprietary operating systems in this respect. Both took open source code and incorporated it into their products sold without, in most cases, giving any credit or anything back. This has some interesting implications, right? Because we start the dis this discussion starts here in that there is always a fine line between freedom and abuse. When you write code, when you give of your time and effort, you have to make a decision. Are you going to err on the side of freedom or are you going to err on the side of abuse? Because we can take we can take a side and say listen we need to license this code for maximum absence of coercion something that in theory i'm very much in support of the problem is you're always going to get that one person or those two people or that group of people or that large company that is going to take your handiwork and they are going to abuse it essentially they're going to take it they're going to use it for their own purposes and they could care less if they leave you in the dust and it goes back to the age-old argument of the MIT license versus the GPL. If I were to bring Alan Jude on this program, he would tell you that the MIT license, the BSD license, those kinds of very, very liberal, uh, those very, very unrestrictive licenses, I guess I should say, are superior to the GPL. Whereas I might say that the GPL and the protection that the GPL offers to the open source developers are is vastly superior and so fundamentally this affects open source because it fundamentally prevents open source from getting ahead so we sort of sabotage our own platform it is it, it, there there is no question that software written in open source will ever really truly have a superior advantage over proprietary alternatives except for transparency and security because any feature that is fantastic and vastly superior to that of its proprietary alternative can simply be taken from the open source product and leveraged into a proprietary alternative one great example of that that just recently happened is APFS right Apple's file system sucked 
And so their answer was to go find the best file system that was out there, which is basically ZFS, and take the parts that they liked or rip off the parts that they liked and include it into their proprietary piece of garbage OS. And we have seen that happen time and time again. And the, the, the fundamental problem that we keep running into with this is that you're never going to have a piece of software that can only exist on Linux. And as a person who works very, very hard to convert people to Linux, to get people to try out Linux, to check it out, a lot of the most amazing software we have, things like Inkscape, things like you know OBS, for example, things like VLC, these are fantastic, well-coded, amazing pieces of software. But these pieces of software, these things, do not exist or cannot exist exclusively on Linux. Because anybody can take that source and they can take it over to Windows, they can port it to Windows, they can port it to Mac OS, and it works. And there's nothing in place to stop them. So my, my initial reaction when I read this article, and we're going to have this article as well as a couple of other related pieces linked for you in the show notes. These things, my initial gut reaction is that this is a bad thing. That the idea of going from so op true open source to source available is a bad thing. Remember, it wasn't just a couple of weeks, uh, just a, a couple of months ago that we covered a story from Copperhead OS. And their decision to not trust the community, their decision to not release the code as true GPL open source, but to simply make it source available. That decision ultimately ended the, Copper, the Copperhead OS project. Okay, so... My, my, my gut reaction is to say we need to follow through on our principles. But after, I've, after I had some time to think about it, after I was kind of you know, mowing over this article, the more I think about it, the more I do believe that there is some place, and I don't know where to draw this line. And if you want to add your feedback, you can at live at asknoahshow.com or 1-855-450-NOAH. I'd, I'd love to get somebody else's take on this. I'm not sure where exactly we draw the line between keeping people's hands totally out of the pot and letting anybody who wants to leverage the software do what they want because at the end of the day that's what maximum of abs maximum absence from coercion is or if there's an appropriate place to drill down just a little bit and say okay you can't do that you got to give back a little bit to the community either monetarily or credit wise but you can't just rip off the best parts of what we have turn it into your own thing and then compete with us to put us out of business and by out of business i just mean you know cease to exist as a project because they're it's not like there's people are making hundreds of millions of dollars. You got to have a pretty savvy mind to, you know, to frame that. But by its very open so by its very nature open source cannot and will not ever be unique to Linux. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying it deserves some consideration and so when organizations like uh the the uh, commu oh, the the common clause come out commonclause.com we'll have that link for you in the show notes when when stuff like this comes out i just wanted to play devil's advocate for a little bit and bring a slightly different twist a slightly different side because i i, I just I'm, I'm i'm not entirely decided on this and again i'm open to bringing this up again on the program or getting some people that maybe dive into uh, licensing a little bit deeper than i have those are kind of my, my shower thoughts on it. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Or you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. Steve writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I'm considering building out my in-law's home network to deal with their things that live on a flat network. Currently, I have PFSense as the router. I'm looking for some recommendations on how to deal with this. And if you could talk to me about good mesh network 
or access points to cover my three-story house with terrible Wi-Fi penetration. As well, I would appreciate it. Love the show and look forward to working with you in the future. Well, Steve, the short answer to your question is that mesh networking is inherently um, inefficient. Anytime you take uh, one thing and try to connect it to a bunch of other things and have all of those things connected to everything, you, you lose efficiency. So it's not, it's definitely not my first choice. The best option is to try to get wiring to each floor. Now that may not always be possible, especially in older houses, definitely may not be possible. But in a Western construction home, almost always what you can do is go either to the attic, which is usually not finished, and you can go over to where the, where in between the wall studs, where the sheet in between the sheet rocks between the rooms, and you can, it's usually open space as long as it's not an exterior wall that has insulation in it, and you can drop a, a cable into it. And, um, and so what we'll do, if we go into a house, even if it's an older house, we will run two pieces of two-inch conduit all the way from the basement, all the way into the attic. And then from there, we will drop wires down into all of the places that we need to have wires. And that is how, that's how we'll get wires. Even into, We've been a house as old as, as uh, 1903, and we were able to get an efficiently wired house. So that's, that's option one. If you can get that to work, that's option A. Now, there's always going to be an exception, right? There's always that one house that either the, the attic is finished and they turned it into a bedroom or something like that. Uh, there's always some reason why there's, where that's just not an option. So if that's not an option for you and you absolutely insist on going with mesh networking, then here's my recommendation. My recommendation for mesh networking would be to use uh, the Ubiquiti systems. And um, so what you can do with Ubiquiti is you can set up one access point to essentially act as a sender and one access point to act as a receiver. And um, so it's, it's a point-to-point -point connection. And once, you, once you've established that, now you have, it's not a mesh network per se, but what you have is you have an RF link. And so let's say you need to go from, you know, let's say you put a switch on all three floors. And at the basement, you have your router. So I've got my router and uh, an RF link basement to RF link first floor to RF link second floor to RF link third floor to RF link fourth floor, so on and so forth, right? And we can link each one of those floors and have a switch in the, you know, in between. So I've got, you know, one access point connecting up, one access point connecting down. And you can effectively build a fairly efficient uh, network using a wireless option. The problem that you're going to run into is anytime you try to put two access points, in my experience, it, it needs to be 20 dB or more of separation which equates to about 25 to 50 feet, depending on if it's an open room or there's walls in between. Anytime you try to put access points closer to that, then, then that, you start to run into them interfering with each other. And that makes it difficult for you to, again, have an efficient network, which is why I say, if you can get away with it, really, really, really try to do wires. Naylor in the chat room says, what is that device that you use to put wires in the wall uh, with the roller management? So I'm assuming he's talking about, I have a, a little magnetic device and what it does is you you take a you take a cable and you, you insert it into this device. You drill a small little hole in the wall, and you uh, you put the wire in the wall. And this device is a big thick piece of metal. And then there's a magnet that goes on the outside of the wall. You put it uh, over the sheetrock. The magnet then touches to this uh, little cable puller device thing, and you roll it up the wall, and it drags the cable with it. And uh, I've never used it to go between floors. I've usually used it to patch between. You know, like we've got an outlet at the bottom and we need to put another Cat5 jack up top or something like that. I've used it to snake wires that way. Um, 
So I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about, but that that is the that is a device that exists out there. And there's all sorts of gimmicks, and uh, we could go on for days and talk about which ones work and which ones don't. In my experience, I'm remodeling my house, for example, and what I chose to do was I just unzipped about a two foot section of wall all the way around each room, just cut out a two two foot piece of section of sheetrock, and that allows me enough hand space to get a. Um, to get a a drill in there and drill through the floor, snake wires up and down, put sheetrock back over it, and then just mud tape and 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 repatch it. If so, if it was my house, that's what I would do. I would not only would I run wire, but I would also uh, I'd replace the electrical and all of that kind of thing. So that's a really long answer to what you're uh, what you're asking, but hopefully that uh, that helps you. Again, open phones this hour one eight fifty five four fifty Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Make your voice heard. Become part of the program. Life is strange. The gaming uh, gaming porting company Furl Interactive has revealed their award winning title, which will be released on Linux and macOS on September 13th. That's two days from now. Developed by Deck9, the game was released by Square Enix for the Xbox One, PS4, and Windows back in 2017. In all three episodes, all three episodes are coming to Linux and Mac as part of a deluxe edition, which will also contain a bonus episode and an outfit pack. Praised for its music, we are pleased to hear that the Linux version retains some of the indie cool soundtrack, which includes the original score by British indie band Daughter. Although part of the 2015 BAFTA award, Life is Strange, the series, you won't need to have played the first game in order to enjoy the ones that are coming, such as Before the Storm, as a standalone story set before the events of the first game. It features a branching story with multiple possibilities and endings, all informed by the decisions taken. So I'm not a gamer, and uh, and I, I don't play a lot of games, but every gamer that I know, particularly the ones that do all of their gaming on Linux, are freaking out over this Life is Strange game that is coming to Linux. So, on September 13th, I will be purchasing the new version of Life is Strange. I will be playing it for the rest of the week, and then I'm going to come back and let you know what I think. I got into Factorio, and it pretty much destroyed my life, because it is such an addicting game, it's ridiculous. We Factorio is one of those games where it's kind of like Minecraft, where the 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 basic premise is pretty simple. I can teach anybody to play it in 30 seconds. You you know you start out by oh I'm going to mine some copper, I'm going to mine some you know steel or whatever, right? And then very quickly it turned into well I could mine it or I could put it onto this conveyor belt and and move this around so it mines itself. But wait, it gets better because I could I could power my steam engine and then this thing could happen automatically. And pretty soon you start building out this elaborate system, uh, you know, and you you look up and you've you've just sunk like three days into this game. And uh, from what I am told from the people that have that have played the, the the Life is Strange series is that that's the kind of game that you just get sucked into and it just envelops your entire life and, and you have to hold on to it. So I'm going to check it out, and of course, as soon as I mention it, the major in the chat room tells me, Life is Strange is an amazing series, absolutely something you have to look into. So, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and <laughs> uh, Pro Pro One feeds us, sounds like having a home lab. Yep, exactly. So, uh, yeah, Life is Strange, we're going to check that out, and uh, if you have any thoughts on games that I should check out, also give me a heads up. Again, one 450 noah or... Email us live at asknoahshow.com. Um, there was an article that came out in Forbes, and this, I think, is going to be the third article that, we have, uh, that we've taken from Forbes on this show. Turns out 
Linux is making a very big penetration into the world of business people that just want to get stuff done. And they don't have any allegiance to open source or Linux specifically. They just want uh, they just want to they just want to use cool stuff that works. And what they're finding is that Linux is that solution. So again, Forbes, uh, Forbes.com, elementary OS first impressions, a simple, beautiful doorway to Linux. As part of my journey into the expansive and exciting world of Linux desktops, I've been engaging in a behavior known as distro hopping. I'm sure that many use Linux users have their personal reasons for doing this, but for me, it's fueled by equal parts of curiosity and knowledge hunting. So recently, I left the comfortable embrace of Ubuntu to discover the different Linux philosophies and approaches of developers having designed a Linux OS. My first steps were of elementary OS Loki. Elementary OS describes itself as fast and open, a replacement for Mac OS and Windows. And while most Linux distributions are fast and open alternatives to the mainstream desktops, such as Apple and Microsoft, only one of them will set users to feel completely at home with elementary OS. Before we dive in, let me present a disclaimer. At the time of this writing, I have used Linux for about nine weeks. There is in no way a professional review or experience critique of elementary OS. Instead, this is the first impressions of someone who is absolutely still a Linux rookie. I'm seeking my own one true distribution, which is incredibly subjective and personal, but also taking highlights observations in order to recommend distros to other people based on their needs and preferences. Visually, elementary OS is stunning. It's crisp, it's highly readable, and it's intuitive. That's probably more than a few design cues that were inspired by Apple. From the center dock at the bottom, with the screen with the frequently used apps, to the menus and photos of music software, all the way around to the file manager down to the core. Elementary is courting macOS users with its elegant design Pantheon desktop, which embraces minimalism and is seriously one of the most pleasing user interfaces I have ever seen in the Linux world. Guys, I don't know if you realize how huge stuff like this is. When you have people that are writing for places like Forbes and this guy, and I've, I've kind of done a little bit of digging in, in, into Jason Evan, is it, I think it's Evan, Evan Glow. Uh, he is not, he, as he's a self-admitted not Linux expert. He's just a guy that needs to be able to get his work done. He's just a writer and needs to be able to get his work done. And as he starts using Linux, it starts to captivate him. And he starts to get addicted to the stability and the security and the reliability that he has with, that he's come to expect from Linux. And then the more he plays, the more he finds that there is to play. And I watched this firsthand. Some of you know that I've gotten to be pretty good friends with a guy who is starting another show called The Schmidt Show, Brad Schmidt. And uh, we had him on the program uh, when he first launched his podcast, and uh, which is doing great. And you can check that out at podcast.theschmidtshow.com. But I didn't really uh, start to talk to him about technology. Really, our, in our shared interest was in politics and in guns, essentially. Those are kind of the two things that him and I kind of centered around. But as we kind of got to know each other and as he started to spend some time here in the Ask Noah studio and, you know, he would use one of my computers or my laptop or whatever, he started to fall in love with Linux and he started to find the limitations that he had in Mac OS. And so as we started kind of digging into that, I, I had joked with him. I was honestly, it really was just a joke. I just said, yeah, within a couple of days, you're going to switch to Linux. And I kid you not, the Friday, I, th I made that joke on Tuesday by Friday, less than one week of, of being around Linux stuff, again, no pressure, I didn't ask, I didn't offer, none of that. 
within by, by Friday, he said, how hard would it be to install Linux on my MacBook? And I, I kind of jokingly responded. I said, you know, I, I, I was I was just giving you a hard time on the air. I wasn't I wasn't actually meaning that we we're going to take your laptop and install Linux by Friday. And he goes, yeah, well, I have just kind of seen how it works. And I just feel like I could get a lot more life out of that MacBook. And so he's got an old Core 2 Duo. So we took his MacBook and tried to install Ubuntu proper on it. Didn't work. Went back and decided we were going to try to install a, uh, I think the second one we did was, uh, oh no, the first one we did was Kubuntu. Tried to get KDE to work. KDE would just load to a black screen, wouldn't load any further. Tried all of the troubleshooting things I could think of. Got some of the people from the KDE project involved. Couldn't get it to work. Bailed on it. Went to Ubuntu proper, Ubuntu with GNOME. Tried to get that to work. Again, colossal failure. Didn't really work. Uh, couldn't get anything to work right. Bailed on that. Finally went to elementary OS. Put the USB flash drive in, booted off of it, installed. Everything worked out of the box. Everything looked fantastic. Everything was recognized. Now, there was an issue with the Wi-Fi card, but that is an issue with that particular model of Broadcom card and is nothing that anybody can do anything about and it's very well documented. You either replace the Broadcom card or you deal with the fact that about 25% eh, of the time when it comes out of standby, it just doesn't connect to Wi-Fi networks. The guy was blown away. And this is with the problematic Wi-Fi card. He didn't actually end up replacing it. It was good enough for him. And so he started using it and watching that experience and watching his reaction with a machine that is 10 years old, maybe a little bit more, with an operating system that doesn't even perform to its true potential, right? Because I was very, very nervous when I, when I handed it back to him. And I actually told him, I said, listen, I don't think you should use Linux. I think you should just stick on Mac OS until we can get you a different machine that's going to run Linux more efficiently because this is one of those things that I just, I'm just uncomfortable with it. It's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth, and then you're going to start not liking Linux. And it's really just this one particular problem that, you know, we can do something about. And, uh, and he said, no, that's, that's, that's fine. I actually, I like it that much and it works that much better. And, um, and I just want to keep using it. And so he has, and he's been using it, um, for the past couple of weeks. And so that really started to open my eyes to how unhappy and uncomfortable people really are with proprietary operating systems, with standard proprietary operating systems. They want something more. They want something different. And so as I'm watching these general writers, not even necessarily Linux tech writers, just these general people that are interested in technology. As I'm watching these guys go to town and one thing after the other, every time they try something, they seem to want, if routinely wind up on Linux. And as I continue to watch Apple make a colossal mess out of their brand and Microsoft kind of follow suit, I, I, I can't help but think that we are in a very exciting time for the Linux desktop. Again, this article, as well as a couple of others, will all be linked in the show notes. We ask you to head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check them out there. They'll be, in the sh they'll, they'll be in the show notes for you, and you can read them all yourself. It's a fascinating write-up, and uh, we actually have a request into Jason to see if we can get him on the program. So I would like to talk to him directly and ask him some of these difficult questions, because I think it will give us all some insight into what the average user is looking at for Linux and what we can do as a community to welcome those people in with open arms. Again, the phone lines are open, 1-855-450-NOAHS, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, um, I'm playing around with um, Mint 19. Here's my problem. They, in, they got Firefox in it, which okay. But no way to add Google as a search. You get Yahoo or 
DuckDuckGo. <laughs> you know, you are the second and person to... You are the second person to. Yeah, you're the second person to ask me this question this week. I, we actually had a work order about this earlier this week too, uh, and I thought the guy was making it up the first time. He says, "I just can't add uh, add 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 Google back to Firefox." It, it when you go into the preference, and sure enough, it's not there. Um, I I haven't really. I hate to tell you this. I haven't really landed on on an answer on how that has uh, what happened. I mean, I know that Firefox had, you know, their their outings with with Google and stuff, and that they dropped them as the default, you know, provider, and and there there was a whole big mess involved with that. But there's always just been, you know, you go into the preferences, you click on search, one click search engines, and you check Google, and uh, and it's there. And that option seems to be, and then there's the default uh, search option, and that option seems to have been removed sometime recently. I have it on still my Arch, the one Arch machine that I have still has the ability to do Google even with the latest updates I checked. And uh, on my laptop here, let me just check, let's see what exact version I'm running here. Um, so on my laptop, I have version, is it 61? 61-0.01. And that does not seem to, that does not seem to have it, or it does not seem to have that issue. I seem to have Google. So I'm not sure what, Mint, you know, I've gotten onto this a little bit, touched on this a little bit on the air. Mint is not my favorite distribution. Any particular reason you're using Mint to begin with? Um, can't seem to find a desk, uh, way to get the Cinnamon desktop to work real well with uh, Ubuntu, regular Ubuntu. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, the, so, the uh, yeah. me off. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you, man. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things. I wish I had a better answer for you, James. Um, what I would suggest is perhaps maybe trying to uh, look to see if there's an original download for. Uh, actually, we can do that. We can have we can have somebody look that up for you. But if we can find an original, you know, like the 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 direct uh, install for Firefox, perhaps they are shipping a, uh, a you know a different version of Firefox that has that restricted. Um, JJ four eight eight four in the chat room says, click on Find More Search Engines. So I don't know if that's an option either. But uh, we'll, 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 we'll take a look at that and see if I can dig into it because I have a feeling this is a bigger issue coming and uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg, as it were. Again, open phones this hour, one 855 no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. We have talked a lot about Ubiquity and Unify products. I absolutely love the line. I love the company. They make a truly fantastic, high-quality, enterprise-grade product that does not require cloud service that you can configure and own by yourself. It is the absolute, the only access point I will use, the access point that is in my house, the access point that is here at the Ask Noah Show studio, the access point that is at uh, Jupiter Broadcasting, absolutely the only equipment I will use. It's absolutely fantastic. Except for routers, we, we tend to go with Microtech. Um, they have released, or have for some time, had out one of probably the best IP camera solutions out there. For the longest time, I shied away from the Ubiquity system because it wasn't an open standard. The cameras do stream RTSP, and so obviously you can add those cameras into something like ZoneMinder or Blue Cherry DVR, but the the NVR themselves, that's their brand for their DVR, their NVR only works with their Unify cameras. And if you buy the NVR, then it offers you a tremendous amount of management potential. So we were remodeling our house, and it came time that I had to choose a camera system. I couldn't put it off any longer, and so I did end up purchasing a Unify system. And uh, we've installed them for clients a couple of times, but this is my first experience using it day to day. And uh, obviously, in my privacy-conscious-centered 
you know, mind, I made some decisions that a lot of other people probably wouldn't make because it's a little bit paranoid, but it has worked out very well. So first of all, the thing that I really liked about the NVR, it ships with uh, basically stock Debian and there is just a PPA that is added and the installation of the NVR software. So all of your data is being stored on a true Linux Debian system, which I was happy about. The other thing that I was really happy about is it's not required to actually purchase their NVR. They offer, you can add that PPA to any computer and they actually support you doing this installed on any machine. So we are bidding out a very, very large camera installation. Um, and uh, it's something that we're actually going to fly a team in here. Uh, we've got people that work all over the United States and we're bringing them all in. Uh, it's going to be all hands on deck for a couple weeks to get this project knocked out. And uh, because it's such a large installation, we need a multi, uh, you know, a multi server environment to store all of this 1080p 30 frame per second footage. And as I was building it out, I was talking to the folks at, at Ubiquity and said, hey, this is what we're kind of up against and what would you recommend? They said, yeah, you know, you can absolutely use, you know, uh, Dell R-series servers and uh, load them up with storage disks, load them up with Western Digital, uh, you know, REDs, which now come in a 10, gigabyte, a 10 terabyte version, which I'm excited to try. And uh, you can stock those things up and it'll absolutely work. And so we're going to build out a storage infrastructure. Then we're going to have a dedicated server to do the actual uh, compositing of all of the RTSP feeds and putting them into a split screen and all of that. So it scales to, to massive levels. And um, I have worked on ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars just just for the DVR plus, you know, these high end Sony or Bosch pan tilt zoom cameras. I have worked with with all of them, and I can honestly say the Unify system, other than not offering a PTZ camera, which is the only critique I really have for them, is an absolute stellar enterprise system. What I have done, what they suggest you do is that you just put it on your LAN and uh, forward a port, and um, each camera creates an encrypted stream, encrypted RTSP stream back to the NVR, and then that NVR consolidates all of those feeds and creates an encrypted tunnel out to every monitoring device. So whether you're viewing it in the, like the uh, mobile app, or if you're viewing it in a, an HTTPS browser, whatever you want to do. And of course you can enable or disable any of those features. So if you didn't want it to be able to go out over a browser, you can disable that features to not have that security risk. Um, and so everything from end to end is entirely encrypted. And I like that it's still not good enough for me because at the end of the day with enough computing power and enough time, you can break any sort of encryption. Right. And so what we have, what, what I did in my house is I set up a, uh, an RTSP or I'm sorry, I set up a separate LAN completely, a separate switch, uh, not just a VLAN an entirely separate switch. And I color coded the patch cables as they come into the patch panel and ran them into a separate POE switch. And that became the, NVR switch and then those connections are hardwired up to the what I'm calling the monitoring stations that are all over the house Well, one key feature was missing and that was that in our old house The way that we did our camera feeds was we ran them into a RF modulator Which is a device that essentially creates your own TV channel and uh, then we ran that into our house cable TV system And so the idea was that you could go into any TV at the house and pull up channel 118 and it would show you what the the camera feed was for the house was so I originally tried to do something like that by just having a computer that was pulled up to the web page. And then I outputted that as, you know, HDMI, put that into an RF modulator and it worked for about the first two hours. And then slowly over time, that camera feed would get more and more delayed and further and further behind. And uh, eventually what I ended up doing was saying, okay, 
well, that's not going to work. I guess I just have to deal with pulling those cameras up on demand. Turns out the Ubiquiti community is amazing and has solved this problem. And so they have a piece of software that is available for you to uh, you, you essentially just take this piece of software and run it on a Raspberry Pi and it creates a split screen camera feed with a dedicated output. So I ran that on a Raspberry Pi, inserted that into my RF modulator, and now I have that feature back. And so on any TV in the house, I can pull it up. Don't have to worry about the security concerns because it's physically separated from the rest of the network. It runs over Cat5 cables. It is technically encoded over IP, but there's no way to get to that. It's a closed network. There's no way to get to that system from outside of the house. And of course, if I ever leave the house and say I want to I do actually want to be able to access it. Well, now I have the ability to just go into, grab a little patch cable, go from my network or my um, security camera network to my main network, pull it up, and it's good to go. And so uh, I just wanted to give a plug to Ubiquity Projects. If you haven't uh, checked them out, uh, do so. And uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that uh, coming up in an Ask Noah show drawing that's going to, that's going to take place in just a little bit. Um, the Telegram group, as I've talked about a couple different times, community is huge to us at the Ask Noah community, at the Ask Noah show. We, we love building communities. We love working with communities, whether it's the Jupiter Broadcasting community or the Southeast Linux Fest community. We love working with communities. We love building those relationships. And I think those human relationships are arguably more important than any of the actual tech. And so one of the things that we are going to do is we're constantly trying to add value to our Telegram group, telegram.asknoahshow.com. We're constantly trying to add value to it. We're constantly trying to make it a welcoming environment for people to get started with Linux. And so we're going to do, it's time, I'm told anyway, by our production team, it's time to do another giveaway. And so details are coming up in just a few moments. Again, your calls, as always, go to the front of the line, one 855 it's 855-450-6624. Send an email to live at com. Aaron joins us from Canada. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Um, I have... Uh solution for the person who had the problem with Linux Mint not offering Google as the Firefox search engine. Okay, awesome. Um, it's because Google, by default, Linux Mint only offers search engines in Firefox that give them revenue. So, like, they, by default, like, they um, modify Firefox to disable the Google stuff, so you... Um, they offer a page where you can add Google manually. Okay. And it's like um, you would, in Firefox settings, you would go to find more search engines or something like that, and it would display a page on um, Linux Mint's website, and you can add Google manually there. The reason they, it's kind of weird that they disable it, but yeah. Okay. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, Aaron, for, uh, for, uh, for coming forward with that solution. Again, this is, this, this has been a great show to exemplify the importance of community, right? Because I may host the show, but I don't have all the answers. And so there's always somebody out there that's smarter than me. The audience as a collective is smarter than me. And so Aaron in Canada, you're the guy that has this particular answer. And I, I, I we're going to, we're going to put, put a special thing in the show notes, um, to, to detail this answer because the, like I say, I think this is the tip of the iceberg because this is the second time this week I've come across this problem. Okay. Well, th thanks, Noah. Yeah, thank you very much for calling in. We really appreciate it, Aaron. Again, one 855 It's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. Just a couple minutes left in the hour. I'm gonna, I see a call just came in here. I'm going to go straight to the air because we don't have a lot of time. Hey, caller, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. 
Hello. Um, I currently have a Windows Media Server with about eight terabytes worth of media. Um, is there any way to transfer that over to, let's say, Ubuntu Server without moving all eight terabytes to another eight terabytes of, uh, you know, hard drives and then moving it back once it becomes ext4? Yes, there is. However, it's much easier to do it that way. Is your only reason to not move? Is there only reason to not move it because you don't have a spare two, uh, two four terabyte drives to store your media on while you make the transition? Uh, the eight terabytes is a six and two ones that are J botted. So yeah, gotcha. the other, yes, I don't have another eight. How about this? If if we if I were to put you back on hold and and I'll have my call screener pick up and take some of your information, what if we were to just send you two four terabyte drives that you could use to 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 move your your media off? You could reset up your server however you want, and then you can move the media back on. That would be amazing. I'm in a generous mood. We're going to do that. I'll put you back on hold. I didn't even get your name, but Sarah will take it. She's our call screen. She does a great job with things like that. I'll put you back on hold. She'll pick up. She'll take all of your. Uh, you know, she'll get all of your particulars down, as it were, and then. Um, uh, I'm just sending a message uh, to her. So she'll pick up, she'll get all of your information. Then what we'll do is we'll just ship you out two four terabyte drives. We stock the Western Digital Reds, and so uh, it's no big deal for me to, to send those out to you. You can use them and then uh, deban them, or you know, if it's not private, then don't worry about it. You know, maybe, maybe you do this. Encrypt them with Lux, because even I can't get into Lux. Encrypt them with Lux, copy all of your data over to it, reset up the server however you want, move your data back, and then uh, just destroy the encryption key, and that'll be the end of your... Uh, be the end of the ability to access those drives. Again, one 450 no it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. So, the giveaway. We tweeted about this. I actually learned about this giveaway on Twitter. Our team tweeted about it earlier today, and then I asked for some details and, and got filled in on the, on the way over to the studio to do the show. So, the way this giveaway is going to work, we have done a giveaway in the past um, where we try to give things away to the people that are part of the Ask Noah Show community. Now, I'm proud to say that the Telegram group is probably one of the largest Linux communities on Telegram. We got hundreds and hundreds of members in there, and we want to get to a 1,000. But when we get to uh, our next 100, which would be 800, when we get to 800 uh, members, we are going to give an $80 Amazon gift card away. Now, when we get so the 800th member will receive an $80 gift card from Amazon. However, so that's cool, but here's what it gets even better. It's not fair to me to give the 800th person a gift card and not give the people that have been in the group the entire time a chance to win something too, right? So the way we're going to do this is, and you can audit the code. We'll have a link to in the show notes. You can audit the code. It's, all, it's an automated computer prod, uh, process open source code, it will flag whoever the 800th person is that joins the Ask Noah Telegram group. It will send me that information. And then what it will do is randomly pick a person that already exists in the Telegram group. That person, the person who was randomly chose, will win a $160 gift certificate. And those unified G3 cameras, yeah, they're about 150 bucks. Coincidence? I think not. Did you know the show is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Then our producer and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com.